Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sabman. I am the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University, and I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. We have new episodes dropping every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Today on Battle Rhythm, we have Arthur Wolchinski, who used to work in all different kinds of places in government. So I'm going to let him introduce himself to our audience. Arthur. Hey, Steve. How are you? Uh, so Arthur Wolchinski, I uh, just retired from the communication security establishment, but my career kind of spans a, a few decades in the government of Canada, including at uh, Foreign Affairs as the Director General for Security and Intelligence, at Public Safety as the Director General for Border Policy and International Affairs, as well as stints at, uh, at, at Canadian Heritage. It's great to be here on Battle Rhythm. You're way too young to be retired. So what are you going to be doing with your retirement years? I don't know about too young. I've already got over 30 years in uh, in, in government, but I'm hoping to do things. You were 10 years old, so therefore you're only 40. Well, <laughs> yeah, I wish. Thanks for for the compliment. Yeah, no, it's uh, I made the magic 55 plus uh, years of service. No, I, I'm I'm hoping to do some uh, some more work with uh, within the sector on security issues and, and international issues. I'm hoping to do some writing, work with some universities. I've always enjoyed being a mentor and working with university students over the course of my, my, my professional career and being a mentor in governments. I'm hoping to keep doing that stuff. Also working on, on, on community uh, issues, whether it's the LGBTQ2 plus community or the, the Jewish community working with refu refugee issues. All those questions for me are ones that I, that I care about. So uh, hoping to stay busy. Well, things have been busy in the security establishment. I'm not going to ask you about what CSE thinks about Rogers crashing. I'm going to ask you what you think about Rogers crashing, given your experience in government over the past 30 years. Well, thanks for that. But again, I, I, I'll make 100% clear that I am not speaking on behalf of any government institution. I'm not speaking on behalf of CSE, not speaking on behalf of past, present, future governments. This is just Arthur's view. And I think that, you know, the Rogers issue for me, what it boils down to is how do we protect our, our critical infrastructure and how do we make sure that we have resilience in our critical infrastructure in a way that, that whatever the cause of, uh, of, of that critical infrastructure being affected, that we have the resilience in order to keep Canadians and Canadian society and Canadian institutions working the way that they should. And I think that one of the things that that Rogers outage showed was that we still have a long ways to go to make sure that our communication systems, that our banking systems, and that all of the things that are dependent on that communications actually have uh, the type of, of redundancy, uh, the type of, uh, of resilience that is required. It was, a, I think it was a, quite the shock to the Canadian system. So how do we become more resilient? Do we smash the cartels of, of two phone companies dominating everything and have do we have a government-funded backup uh, uh, cell phone service? How do we how do we build resilience? Well, I think making sure that we uh, we do have redundancy in the systems, particularly on critical services, is is important. And you know, 
a lot of people are talking about competition and having increased competition in telecoms, and I think that that's uh, that's an important component of it. A competition uh, that that is essentially being able to acquire, you know, access to existing physical infrastructure is not necessarily going to protect that existing physical infrastructure when it when it gets affected by whatever the the cause of uh, of the outage may be. So I think that's part of it. Uh, I think that there's ways that Canadians themselves need to be able I mean, for, for us, just on a personal level, we don't have every single electronic device tied to one service provider, right? Like just for, for at home, I've got Bell on, uh, on mobile, I've got Rogers, so that something somewhere is, is, is hopefully going to work. But I think that you, know, you raise some interesting questions around whether or not government has a more robust role to play in terms of the, the infrastructure, the technology that's out there to make sure that it is available uh, for Canadians when they need it. I mean, we're a huge country. If, if the profit margin is the only one that's going to determine where we have services, particularly as an online environment becomes even more and more central to Canadians' everyday lives, I think that we're going to keep on having profit problems in terms of access uh, to what should be a fairly fundamental basic service. You know, the information highway, I think, is is as relevant today as, you know, physical highways for cars were in the in, in the 60s. And government spent a whole lot of money building them across the country. I think that there is a, an important conversation to be had about how do we make sure that that all Canadians have access to what effectively now I think is a right uh, around access to that kind of information. Well, I think that the information for highways are a really good metaphor to use because I was about to joke about how well our old highways are paid for by the private sector. Oh, wait, they weren't paid for by the private sector. They were <laughs> paid for by government. I'm more familiar with how things were rolled out in the United States than in Canada, but Eisenhower made it a national security priority to have all those interstates that cross the country so that way logistics could flow from one side to the other in a, in, a, in a national security emergency. And what's so I think the analogy is perfect in terms yeah. of, uh, of the online environment around commerce, around uh, individual communications, around institutional communications, governments, security agencies, like we're, we're all tied to. One of the things that for me was quite shocking about the about the outage was the effect that it had on access to 911 services uh, mm -hmm. a, across the country. So if, you, if you're, you know, uh, had only Rogers, and you had an emergency and you couldn't get through to 911 that's that's a, a key issue in terms of the well-being of and, and health of, of canadians for me it is a national uh, security question the other thing is it shows a vulnerability right like if you want to take it into the defense and security realm if you know an uh, an outage uh, as a function of what rogers executives have told us is uh, was you know a maintenance issue gone awry that points to a fairly significant vulnerability in terms of our overall overall systems and what that might mean from a from a national security perspective i mm -hmm. think is an important consideration for all of us to uh, to reflect on and also you know how do we as individuals maintain that resilience it was I was at a, at, a, at a mall here in, in, in Ottawa, and the lineups for cash at banks were <laughs> insane yeah. because Interact was down. So yep. if you wanted to buy something, you had to either use a, a, a credit card, uh, and even then it was spotty, or you had to get cash. And people were getting cranky, and the system wasn't even down for two hours at that point. So imagine if, if, if you know, this is something that lasts a yeah. day. I think, again, it talks about the importance of resilience, redundancy in, in, in key government, uh, in, in key critical infrastructure areas where I think 
uh, you know, a public conversation, a policy conversation about what role should government play, mm-hmm. not only in terms of having competition, but in terms of making sure that the system is there for us. I, mean, I think that's an important policy conversation to have. And one of the differences is that the old highways, you know, we can imagine them being attacked in wartime, but the information from highways being attacked all the time in peacetime, right? So, uh, you know, we, we don't have to worry about driving from Ottawa to Toronto being interrupted by somebody attacking the highway. Occasionally there's a protest or whatever, but but we know that every day all different parts of our internet are being attacked by governments and non-government actors. And so this kind of interruption is probably not the last one we're going to see anytime too soon. No, I, I think that, you know, this is something that, uh, that that governments around the world are preoccupied with. And yeah. and I mean, it's interesting that when, when you say, you know, our, our information highway is attacked in peacetime, but I think the definition of what is conflict is actually evolving. And, you know, how does one perceive hostile activities in an mm-hmm. online environment and what are the you know how do we have appropriate rules of engagement whether or not it's for you know a defense and military context or what does it mean for governments in general how do we you know identify that behavior what do we tell you know our, our citizens about it and then what are the appropriate responses to it are all i think very important questions as we've entered this you know complex gray zone of conflict now, what's striking is to, to have a, this as a segue, is that this area is very confusing, whereas a different area should not be that confusing, which is uh, one of the controversies the past couple of weeks has been a uh, reservist by the name of James Topp, who has been an anti-vaxxer, who has become a poster boy for dissent against the government in Canada on a variety of issues. He just likes to think of himself as just a lonely voice out there raising questions about anti-vaccines, but he's become much more than that. And he is now being court-martialed because there are straightforward rules for this, which is if you want to engage in political activity as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, you can't do it while wearing uniform because we don't want it to be seen as if the military is engaged in protest. As someone who is very careful to make sure that you're not speaking on behalf of government, I'm sure you have a stance on what James Stop has been doing. Well, I think that, you know, look, uh, I, I believe that freedom of expression is a fundamental Canadian value. It's a it's a human right. But I think it is really in context is supremely important. And I think both he, uh, Top, and his supporters have acknowledged that if he had done the same thing out of uniform in in sort of like a private kind of context, or even even in a more public one. The reason he got attention was because he was wearing a uniform. And I think that that, that, that in, in itself is the problem. The fact that, that he acknowledged that he wouldn't have gotten those, uh, that attention without the uniform goes to his intent behind mm-hmm. using the uniform to amplify something that was a political message. And I know this is something that, that, that you're always very, very strong on is around civilian control of the military. And that the that it should be politicians that and uh, the government of Canada, the duly elected government of Canada, through its institutions, that convey to the military what it expects it to do, not the other way around. And then for someone to use the very imagery and the very uh, vehicle that describes our military uh, to try and affect a political outcome, I think, is precisely why those rules were introduced in the military not to do that. And I, I say this without prejudice to whatever the you know the outcome or the process uh, around the uh, you know the, the court martial may 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 be. But you know it, we are not supposed to use our positions in the military, in particular, given its monopoly on the use of state power and force, <laughs> to advance. 
a particular political agenda that you disagree with, particularly when it's a government policy that you're there to implement. I mean, and also on a personal level, I mean, I, I, I've traveled with, with into various parts of the world, including to uh, you know, Afghanistan during the, the NATO mission there. There were requirements for vaccinations pretty well everywhere that I went. And it wasn't just to keep me healthy. It was to keep the, the group healthy, right? Like if, if people can just sort of like withdraw from the medical advice that they're given when they're being deployed, you're not only exposing yourself to potential harm, but you're actually having a potential effect on the effectiveness of the unit that you're in. If you become a vector for, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, yellow fever or the flu or COVID, and then you then pass it on to your colleagues because you haven't taken the precautions that you need to, that, that goes to the well-being and the capability of the unit that you're in. And I think that, that government and the military have an absolute responsibility uh, to protect the, the well-being of all of the service persons and all of the people who are working together to achieve a particular outcome. I, I can continually get gobsmacked by individuals who, who join the military and then who object to something that's been essentially standard practice for as long as I can remember, which is, you know, common health care and making sure that everybody's inoculated to protect the, the, the well-being of the group. So I, I find it completely bizarre. Well, it's because this particular vaccine, unlike other uh, inoculations, has become uh, politicized. Two things, just one to put this in, uh, in scale. This week, the United States military announced they're kicking out 60,000 reservists, National Guard people who refused to get a shot. So the military is actually kicking out a Canadian military-sized hunk of personnel from their own military. 60,000 is roughly the size of our force. And that's that. They're just getting rid of that many people. Yeah, this really speaks to the issue of the day, which is that when we talk about civil-military relations, we try to insist that the generals are mistaken, that the military is political, in that the military is a political instrument. It's used to change the political outcomes of other places. Every decision about the military is inherently political. But we try to draw a line between that which is political and that which is partisan. And the thing about the shots has become, it's not just political, it's partisan. It's not just a matter of public policy, because everything that's a matter of public policy is political, but that it is partisan, that it is putting you somewhere in the political contest, making you an actor in the political combat in Ottawa or in the media or whatever. And it makes it appear as if the military is not just an actor you know, shaping politics by its mere existence, but it's actually taking a stand that during the Trump administration, the, military, the American military is very, very concerned about being positioned as if it was a supporter of the Trump administration. And Trump spent all this time talking about his general. And we haven't had that experience here really where you don't really see Canadian politicians try to wrap themselves around the, the military and try to make the military a part as an actor. There, there are people who do it, but it's not quite the same thing. But the, the vax thing is something that is not just a medical thing. It's a political partisan thing. It's not that all parties are equally opposed or supportive of vaccines. It's very much of a right wing with some left wing, but mostly right wing phenomena. And so, you know, James Top, like to think that he's a, a lone voice in the wilderness that just happens to be getting attention because he's wearing a uniform, but it's also because there's all these actors out there that want to use him for their own benefit. 100%, which is again, part of, part of the irony is that, that a number of, of partisan actors have essentially glommed onto what top represents because it, it plays to a particular partisan con, uh, constituency that they think works for them. So it's, it's, the, it's a kind of this weird intersection of 
I support the, the troops, but just the troops that kind of agree with, with my particular approach to, yeah. to vaccine mandates. So it's literally like, you know, trying to, to glom onto the uniform as a symbol of some kind of, you know, right-wing zeitgeist, while at the same time being anti-establishment and anti, uh, anti-government at the same time. It's, it's kind of this weird, if you pardon my using the expression, horcrux <laughs> uh, you know, with Harry Potter reference of of of, uh, of 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 you know extremist ideology, anti-vaxxer uh, partisanship that I think is pretty toxic. Well, we just had Canada Day the last week, and I, you know there are a lot of people trying to reclaim the Canadian flag. That's a lot, another symbol of what should be the entire nation, which has been used by one side of the spectrum or far side of the spectrum that suggests that they are the true Canadians. And that's caused the rest of us to wonder how do we show our, our love of Canada and our patriotism without it being seen at, you know, well, my neighbor's thinking, well, Steve's become a right-wing extremist. And the answer I've given to that is I bought a, a pride flag because <laughs> while it's you can't have right-wing extremists who happen to be LGBTQ. They tend to be separate phenomena that, that the far right tends to not only be anti-vax, but also misogynist, homophobic, racist, xenophobic, all those other things travel together. And so if you show the, the Canadian flag along with a pride flag, I think it sends a signal that you're tolerant, not that you're full of hate, but I, I could be wrong about that. No, look, I mean, I, first of all, I've wrapped my literally wrapped myself in the Canadian flag more often than I can than I can count. For me, it is an absolute symbol of freedom. Uh, you know, I'm a refugee to this country. Canada, you know, quite literally saved my family and saved me. It gave me remarkable opportunities. So I will always look at the Canadian flag with fondness and with you know a sense of of, of, of deep deep uh, gratitude. But you're right. I mean, I, and I've talked uh, to a number of colleagues who are in the security domain who, you know, at home, they have a flagpole and they've been flying the, the Canadian flag or they, you know, they have, uh, you know, the number of Ford F-150 pickups that are, that are, that are used by public servants is remarkably high, uh, <laughs> and, you know, who had maybe a Canadian bu- flag bumper stick, who all of a sudden felt self-conscious around it. And, mm-hmm. and or, or, you know, precisely as you were saying, they're like, how do I demonstrate, you know, what the flag means to me without it having been appropriated by those for whom it means things that are antithetical to me, like authoritarianism, racism, misogyny, homophobia. And like, even I, like, it was, it was funny, I, I did something similar to you, to you, Steve, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a, there's a Canadian pride flag, which is the rainbow mm-hmm. uh, flag. But in the middle is the maple leaf. Oh, sure. There you go. Uh, so so I, I actually bought one of those for my uh, for my truck. <laughs> and, and I fly that. So, you know, it's the maple leaf. It means what it means to me. But I actually do want to feel, you know, say it's similar to you, is distinguish uh, a little bit from what, what has become a, a really problematic appropriation of a symbol that's meant to be around inclusion, diversity, you know, de- democracy and, and accountability. So, um, yeah, I think it's time for us to reclaim it. I think the, the, the rainbow colors will be a bit of a transition before I just play and I'll fly the red and white uh, maple leaf and take it from there. But it's interesting how symbols have, have become, you know, so politicized uh, as well. I mean, like, well, you know, I've seen a lot of our colleagues have been commenting about the old red ensign, the old Canadian flag and how it's taken on a certain also political uh, context that we need to be mindful of. And yeah, it's, it's still still troubling, but Maple Leaf is still ours, I think.
and it's still flown at, at NATO headquarters without any adoration. It's just a, it's just my belief. I don't think people in Brussels or there are at the summit uh, recently in, in Madrid were thinking anything, but oh, that's the Canadian flag. They weren't thinking, reading too much into it. So let's move on to the NATO summit. This happened in between in our hiatus. Our old co-host, Stephanie Van Lackey, and I used to go to these summits when they had side parties. Uh, we weren't able to go this time around, but we're looking forward to Lithuania, I guess, next time. As an observer of, of all things uh, Canadian foreign policy and multilateral organizations, what was your uh, impression of, of the summit? Was there any surprises that came out of it? Oh, I think it was you know, a really important, important summit for Canada, but I think for Western liberal uh, democracies. I think I saw my, my former colleague and, and good friend and Kerry Buck, Canada's former ambassador uh, to NATO, talk about how uh, this was one of the most important summits since since NATO was formed. And there are key elements of it. I mean, it was galvanized, I think, Western opinion that, that NATO membership really, truly, deeply matters. And Russia, through its invasion of, of, of Ukraine, showed exactly how important that was. And that this summit clearly uh, showed, I think, allies' commitment uh, to each other. They restated it. I think Canada actually, you know, its announcement around opening of, uh, of new embassies in Lithuania and Estonia, in uh, Bratislava, Slovakia, and in, in Armenia show that our presence is important, that we need to invest in it. And I think that that was really, really good news from a diplomatic front. I think talking about increasing our, our resources to the battle group in, in Latvia and our leadership in that context, though it could have been a little bit more specific and a little bit more, you know, clear in terms of what that was going to be. But I think it showed that Canada is eager to, to continue to contribute and to, to build on, on its contribution to NATO. I think that, that the announcement that Sweden and Finland are joining uh, NATO, are aiming to join NATO, and, and Turkey coming to an, a, an accommodation around their uh, eventual uh, uh, membership in NATO, I think is, is also historic. I'm not sure if, you know, if, if, if Putin's objective through, uh, through invading Ukraine was to constrain and negatively affect NATO, he seems to have had the profound opposite effect from that what was his intent. So, you know, I thought it was a really, you know, key summit, uh, mentioning also the challenges that China poses geostrategically, I think was also a, a key development at this summit. And Stoltenberg's, you know, reference in that regard, I think was also quite, quite significant. You know, NATO summits can be kind of, you know, ho-hum and, you know, they used to bleat on incessantly about, you know, 2% and 2%. And while, you know, numbers are all wonderful, I think this was a lot more tangible in terms of doctrine, in terms of policy, and in terms of posture uh, that, that I think made it quite exceptional uh, as a NATO summit. As someone who works in global affairs, how important is it to have a strategic concept and have it change? Is is it is it just a, a document that we have to wrestle with every ten years, or has it become a, a signpost for policy? I, you know, we uh, list out what are our priorities, but is is this really? shape behavior in the aftermath of it, or is, or is it all just sort of a forcing function, just get everybody on the page for, you know, a, a photo op? No, I don't, I don't think it's a, it's just for a photo op. I mean, I don't, I don't want to, oh, policy documents are great. And then, you know, again, as somebody who's spent, you know, decades writing them, I'm not going to like, you know, six weeks after leaving the government, throw them completely under the bus and say that, they, that they're just performative. They're not. They give us a, a good sense of direction and emphasis. And I think that they are important touch points that are, are useful tools between allies, that they're effective in communicating intent, potential adversaries and, and external actors. 
And they also have a forcing function within government. So I think that they really are kind of important documents. Are they always followed exactly to the letter in, the, in, in, in crisis? No, that would be my short, my short response to it. But they do, I think, provide longer term strategic guidance to all kinds of institutions, again, within a government and also between allies that, that will help or, orient NATO and its, uh, and its capabilities uh, into the future. So I do think it's important. I do think that the way that it was that it was that, that it came together and identified key evolving threats and dynamics was, uh, was also important. The way it talked about the new resources and new uh, assets being deployed, particularly on on the eastern flank, were really quite significant in sending messages to adversaries, but also in terms of helping governments decide how they're supposed to allocate and, and prioritize their own resources and development of capabilities into the future. So yeah, I think it was. It's quite significant. And there's some noise made here anyway of how vague our new commitments to the Latvian mission are. Is this something that you think is problematic or is it just sort of a natural order of things that we have to work out what all of our eight or nine different partners in Latvia are doing and then we can figure out what will go along with it? Or is this something that is sort of just slow because this government is slow? I think it's somewhere between the two, not to, you know, not to, you know, parse it too fine. I think sometimes decisions are take take time because you actually want to be thoughtful. You want to look at who's bringing what to the table and making sure that 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 we bring capabilities and assets and leadership that that fits in with uh, the requirements of, of the day. So that takes conversation. It takes uh, engagement with other partners who are going to come to the table. So we can't do that do that unilaterally. We also have to be realistic about exactly what capabilities we can bring to the table. And, and I think that that's a function of, of a better understanding of what our allies are, are going to do as well. So it, it takes time. That said, I would have expected that a little bit more of that work would have been done before the summit. And that, that you know, when you come and say, yeah, we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to increase capabilities, you at least have something a little bit more tangible to, to put on, on the table. Because otherwise you do become, uh, you know, people are cynical about our own, our, our capabilities and that Canada, you know, in my, my opinion, has too often been just performative. We love, you know, our microphones, we love saying things. And then, you know, we're a little bit slower on, on their implementation. Uh, we're not unique in that, in that regard, you know, there's, you know, a whole bunch of, of allies for whom that's sort of like the the, the go-to move is, is, is talk a lot and then, you know, rag the puck. And when it comes time for, uh, for implementation. So, you know, again, we're not that, that big of an outlier there, but just that, you know, for me, it's really important that when we say something, we live up to it and we live up to it quickly and uh, not just talk about things. But that's why I'm, I'm happy that in, in some ways, we did already announce some tangible things, and not least of which is that increased diplomatic presence. NATO is not just a military grouping, it's also a political grouping. Uh, and having the capabilities, that, that, that diplomatic presence, a greater diplomatic presence in Eastern, Eastern Europe, I think is really important in understanding the dynamics of the region and then making sure that the Canadian government is well informed uh, in terms of making decisions that align our military capabilities, develop our military capabilities, wow. the situation on the ground. Yeah, I thought that all in all, from both in terms of Canadian performance and NATO's overall uh, posture, I thought it was a very important gathering. Yeah, I, I think it would, uh, we'll see how long this strategic concept lasts, because the last one was undone a couple of years later by the Russian invasion of Crimea, which, as you suggested, that invasion and then this uh, latest invasion have caused NATO to become more united and invest more resources in the East. 
I think we'll leave that here for now, Arthur. Uh, we really appreciate your time here on the podcast. So in our next segment will be your interview with Charlotte duval Latois about her book that addresses the inclusion of women in the Canadian Armed Forces and how a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with in the Arbor Report have deep roots. And so we're looking forward to hearing that interview. Arthur, thanks again for joining us today. We'll look forward to hearing from you more in the future. Thanks, Steve. It was a pleasure. My name is Arthur Wolchinski, and I'm pleased to be here with Charlotte Duval-Antoine for this edition of Battle Rhythm. Charlotte Duval-Antoine is the Ottawa Operations Manager and a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a collaborate at the Network for Strategic Analysis. Her book, The Ones We Let Down, is the result of her MA research in military history at Queen's University, which she obtained in 2019. This book is the start of Charlotte's exploration into Canadian military culture, leadership, and organizational change. Welcome, Charlotte. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I, it's a real pleasure to be here. So I was really eager to, uh, to read this book. Uh, for me, the full integration of women in Canada's military is still a work in progress. And decades after the decision of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal to compel the Canadian forces to do so, there's still clearly a lot of work to do. Today's news is filled with the Canadian military still finding its way to address incidents of sexual assault, harassment, and how to deal with these things without impunity for the perpetrators. So the ones we let uh, down, for me, is also an important volume in understanding the efforts of the Canadian forces and the Department of National Defense in fully integrating women in all roles in the military. It underscores the failures of senior leaders in enabling a culture change that was required by the Canadian forces, and it made me reflect on what we could have been doing to change that course of Canadian military history. So again, thank you for writing this very important book and for joining us on Battle Rhythm. So uh, my first question is, what motivated you to research gender integration in the Canadian forces and led you to writing this book? So it's quite a long story, but I'll, I'll keep it short. Um, so I... I went to Queen's University in 2017 to do my my master's degree. I knew I wanted to do military history, so that that was kind of sad uh, for me. Uh, but my research project was uh, mostly focused on memories of war. But as I discussed with my supervisor, I realized that uh, that research was not really aligned with my career goals, which was like I wanted to uh, contribute to defense policy. And so I asked him, so what about women in the military aside from nursing sisters and the contribution of women in World War II? And he told me there's not much. So he sent me a couple of dissertations and uh, I was struck by one written by Karen Davis, who is now with um, Defense Research and Development Canada that, that explored uh, the integration of women from 1970 to to the, the end of the 1990s uh, too. And she was not so much focused on the 1990s, but as someone that had heard about Somalia, heard about the decade of darkness, I was quite struck that this period of gender integration included itself in the decade of darkness, but there was not really any conversations about this, about like that larger historical context. And that's how I started. Well, that's, that's I mean, a really interesting kind of uh, journey to get to that subject. The fact that, you know, the memories of war and the role that, that, that women had played uh, historically in, 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 uh, in, the, in the forces, and that there were very gendered roles. Uh, but I was wondering maybe if you can tell us a little bit about what your research told you about the role of women 
before the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal dis, uh, uh, decision that was in Brown versus the Canadian Armed Forces. What, it what does it tell you about the status of, of women in the Canadian forces at the time that the decision of the tribunal was rendered? So there was quite a complex ex history of like increasing women's participation in the, in the Canadian military at the time, like Brown uh, versus the Canadian armed forces did not come out of nowhere. Uh, it actually like establishes itself with like over 20 years of regulations and legislative changes in Canada with the Canadian Human Rights Act uh, and the Charter of Rights and Freedom. So progressively, even then, like quite reluctantly, the military allowed women to to serve more in in more roles. So uh, be, before it was very limited, women could enlist for only two years. It was uh, something that happened before they would get married and actually married women or women with children could not join uh, the military. So you, you find yourself in this situation uh, where participation is limited to uh, service uh, positions, uh, usually clerks, only single women would serve. So you tended to have younger women, uh, usually to get uh, monetary independence or to find a husband or both. And then when the Charter of Rights and Freedom happened and that Section 15 prohibited any forms of discrimination uh, based on sex, questions started arising. But, but the military has spent uh, close to 20 years advocating that gender was an operational effectiveness requirement and that only men uh, could be operationally effective, at least in combat and close combat positions. And so that's what Brown versus the Canadian Armed Forces really explodes this idea that women could not be operationally effective and, and that they were a second-class soldier in the military for, for a long time in, in Canadian history. I, I always found that, that argument to be an interesting one, the question of operational effectiveness, because people never actually ask the question whether or not the criteria that they use for uh, defining operational effectiveness are actually appropriate to the tasks that are being asked. Was there any, in, in your research, did you see any conversations about that in those early days after, after the decision? Did the forces through all of the various studies and, and, and tests they put in place to, uh, to look at the status of integration, did anybody actually question how they defined operationally effective? Not really, not to the extent that I saw in, in the documents that I had, and it's quite a limited archive that I had access to. They tested women's operational effectiveness, but they didn't even question the way that they went about those trials. There were trials in the 70s, and they compared the performance of newly hired women to the performance of experienced servicemen. And there was no real question about whether or not that was comparable. So th there was a study, a social behavioral study that found that the leader's attitude mattered in terms of operational effectiveness and helping women perform to the best of their ability. But there was not like even differentiation in terms of performance. Uh, people were not at the same level. So no, there was no real introspection. And even in my book, I talk about the fact that gender integration was never defined at the yeah. an institutional level. So even the most basic principle that should that they should have defined was not defined. And, and so like all that kind of top down and bottom up reflection about 
well, what does that mean for the military? Do we actually need to reflect on how we do things did not happen because there was not that conversation about really what it means uh, to integrate women. And, and that is too bad because if you read the, the verdict of the, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, they recognize that a bona fide occupational requirement was subjective and that the military did believe that women could not be operationally effective, but the tribunal said it's not proven empirically. And the military just said, okay, we just have to accept this decision and and not think like, oh, okay, like they're saying that we did not prove it, but we believe we did. And so it's like that very interesting dynamic and and it's a missed opportunity, I find. I think it's it's it's, it's fascinating because I mean one of the things that you know my experience with with uh, with the CAF and national defense is that they research everything, that they plan for everything. And the fact that something foundational, like a definition of what does it, what does full integration mean? Uh, what does operational effectiveness mean? The absence of that seems, again, counterintuitive. And I'm wondering how much of that was influenced by the cultural aspects of the armed forces at the time, and that that culture is what you know made senior leadership in the forces reticent to accept the decision of the tribunal. I mean, it's all about culture. It's how the, the institution is uh, set up, it's the relationship, it's the assumptions, it's the values, it's everything around it. And, and you kind of find this difficulty when you're deconstructing culture. Sometimes as an outsider, you will come into a culture and be like, okay, what does this mean? A specific concept. And people will have a hard time define it to you. Uh, discuss the fighting spirit of the warrior ethos uh, to the military, even though that concept now is under evolution in the Canadian military. But it's something that people feel very strongly about, but they cannot really define what it means. And because it's so ingrained. And so you find yourself in this situation where the ability to reflect upon yourself is difficult. But we need to take into account that this happened during the decade of darkness. And it was at a time where the military was in such transition and, and difficult time that also like to what extent was it because of that decision not being something that the military wanted, but also them thinking that it was the least of their problem and they're just going to take the easy way. And that is part of culture obviously because when you have to prioritize things the military will always prioritize combat and what they define as operational effectiveness which is usually mission success like success in in combat and like all the moving parts of the institution needs to be geared towards that and so they're not going to think that they have the opportunity to really self-reflect because they do not have time to do so yeah i mean i think that that's uh, again the the era following the uh, the decision was definitely a challenging one for the, for the and you you articulate articulate those challenges very clearly uh, in the book in terms of the Somalia affair the operational uh, pace around the war in the Balkans and Canada's role in, in that uh, budget cuts in the aftermath of uh, you know of, of the recession but in the late 80s into the early 90s all of this was a, was made the the environment of national defense in the Canadian military community particularly challenging but I mean, are you letting them off a little easy there in that regard? Yes, it was challenging. But as, as they were trying to revision themselves, shouldn't they have taken into account that decision of the tribunal uh, more directly in how they were reorienting? Or was it just too much? No, I do not think that it is an excuse. Uh, I think that it's additional challenges for sure. But the tribunal decision came quite 
early as downsizing was happening uh, and, and the budget cuts were happening. But there was, for example, downsizing, they had to cut personnel quite significantly. When we talk about just representation, they could have made personnel planning to make sure that it was coinciding properly with the goals of gender integration. And even the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal told the military, okay, you had planned a study to try and test women uh, joining combat roles. Use that as a preliminary plan. So they were like, hey, you have something to get started. But they did not expand that plan. Once again, that was another missed opportunity. It's a lot of missed opportunity because the culture chose to make choices at a time of challenges and prioritize certain things over others. And this is often what happens when uh, things are difficult and when an institution is under such stress and pressure is that you, you kind of find yourself in a situation where you retract upon yourself, you become more defensive. And, and you kind of end up being self-sabotaging in, in a way for the things that you do not prioritize. I do not use that as an excuse. It's to make sense of the context because I do not believe that just saying that the people in this institution were just bad people and we should have gotten rid of them. I mean, they are extremely bad people that I talk about that, that commit crimes and that should have been removed way earlier, but at the larger institutional context, you need to understand that people in organizations can get very defensive, especially when everything that they do is so closely interconnected to their identity. And and so it, it becomes like a way more complex phenomenon to deal with. But once again, it's a missed opportunity. There's so many things that they could have done. And there are actually internal reports that said, well, you could have done better. Just for example, pushing gender integration down to the responsibility of one person within the headquarters is a problem. It is not a smart thing to do because in the end, you find yourself with like so many blind spots that, that you cannot deal with. There were things to get done. You could have integrated it as part of your planning processes. Absolutely. It's just that they did not have the wherewithal. And because it was asking them of doing something that was so unusual for them, they thought that, well, we're going to like push it down the road because senior leaders thought that they had better things to do for lack of a better term. So that's interesting in terms of like perceptions of instruction and direction to, to people who are used to a, a chain of command. And this might be an, an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think the fact that... Um, the decision was rendered by a by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, right, as opposed to a a court, a federal court, or even the Supreme Court. That that the decision not to appeal that decision at the tribunal level affected how it was perceived by a, a hierarchical organization like like the like the Canadian Forces. Maybe I'm I'm actually not too sure. Uh, for the simple reason that they are two main dynamic that are in play that kind of explain why the military did not really seem to take the the tribunal decision that seriously. And I mean that at the institutional level, because I know people that really cared about this decision and wanted to do good things. Um, one is the idea of the profession of arms and that the military is a self-regulating uh, profession. And so because of that, military uh, people tend to be very defensive when they're directed by civilians to do something. Usually it's they want to civilize us. Um, 
and we need to take into account that that was not so long ago uh, when the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces were put together in the same headquarters by by Pierre Trudeau. And you have that sort of defensiveness, and and a lot of people saw the the push to have more women join the military as a political decision, as a means to test the military, to use the military for social experiments. And it's difficult uh, to to deal with that kind of perception. And I don't think that whether it came from the Supreme Court versus the the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal made a difference. That being said, where a Supreme Court decision could have made a difference is in terms of the prioritization at the political level. Because we see that people in government at the higher levels of government and cabinet tend to take Supreme Court decisions more seriously. And so that is where the biggest question mark finds itself. But as a historian, I'm also uh, quite reluctant to be like, well, let's see if history happened another way. But it is actually a, a very interesting question to ask. And it could be interesting to look at past Supreme Court decisions when it comes to integration and inclusion and see like what effect they had on the organization that they erected to pursue a greater inclusion, to see if there is a heavier factor in the fact that this is the Supreme Court of Canada that made that decision. See, the reason why I asked about that linkage was precisely, uh, you know, what you talked about, that it would have focused the attention of political leadership at the time. The charter was still relatively new in terms of its entry into force. And a lot of the big changes in Canadian society were as a function of judicial decision at, at higher levels, whether at the Federal Court of Appeal or even the, the Supreme Court. And, you know, I, I think I, I mentioned to you uh, that at the time, I was actually a political staffer in the office of the minister responsible for the status of women from 1994 to 1999. So a good chunk of that decade of darkness, I was part of the, the conversations around political attention to women's equality. And I'm, I'm really embarrassed to say that I actually don't recall political discussions around women's better integration in the cap, because I think a lot of people said they're working on it, right? It was, there was a decision, they decided not to appeal, things were happening, bureaucracy, other things were taking up time. But, I, you know, I guess my, my question was, you know, as someone who was close to it, I'm asking somebody who's now studied it, was there enough political engagement from the Minister of National Defense, from the Prime Minister's office, from you know, status of women Canada from other parliamentarians and parliamentary committees. Uh, was there enough attention paid to address those inequities at the time? No, <laughs> simple enough. No. And uh, actually, uh, as a person that was quite a junior bureaucrat at the time, you don't have to feel too embarrassed because in recent conversations with a former minister of national defense at the time of gender integration, and that conversation happened in 2021. So after like the the year of scandals of sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. That former minister said, I do not recall seeing and hearing so many gendered related issues in the Canadian military ever. And I was shocked. I was like, I know you were minister at the time and you didn't know about this. I mean, this is serious, right? And so no, I, I find that the involvement of status of women, aside from the Royal Commission of 1970, there is no real discussion about the role of that department Department in in pushing for women's integration in the in the military, and I think that it goes back to this idea that the military is something else. The military regulates itself; we cannot really touch it too much. And so you find yourself in a situation where it was kind of free for all for the military. And it's something that, that we saw also around Operation Honor, that it was everything under the purview of 
the chief of the defense staff and the vice chief of the defense staff. And we kind of saw that the civilian part of, of national defense, including the minister at the time, were kind of hands off on that process. So it's a lesson that I think we're learning, but it's particularly interesting to look at that when it comes to gender integration, when in fact the minister was highly involved in the post-Somalia reforms. And this is why we were able to have successful uh, post-Somalia reforms in the, in the military at the end of the 1990s, early 2000s, is because we had such a strong ministerial commitment to it. And so that accountability mechanism at the civilian level and political level did not exist. So unfortunately, because of that, civilians on other sides of government that could have helped the military pursue that, that change properly were not involved at all. There was a ministry advisory board, there was the Canadian Human Rights Commission that, that looked, that monitored implementation, but also they made recommendations. They were trying to guide the military, but also the military was not listening to them. So there's also like, how do you push the military as civilians to, to really implement the changes that are, that are being advocated for. And that is an issue of ministerial and political accountability that was not there at the time. Yeah, and I, I find that you know challenging to, to accept is that this is something that cut across political spectrum, right? Like this was, there were men and women uh, who were ministers of, of national defense at the time. There were liberals, there were conservatives. But this is like a decades long, long process. It, same thing in terms of parliamentary committees. Like I, I don't know in, in your research if you looked at whether or not parliamentary committees actually looked into this question. But as our friend Steve Seidman likes to remind us of the importance of civilian control of the military, you know, how, how did this become such a huge failure on the part of civilian oversight of the military that literally decades have passed before and many studies and research have passed before uh, the military is seeming to take it more seriously than it has. Why that that societal essentially failure? So first of all, I, I did not find anything in terms of parliamentary committee and reports on this. Might be because the archives on the internet are limited and I never got the chance to, when I was in Kingston, come to Ottawa and just go to Library and Archives Canada. But yeah, I, I mean, it's something that I reflect more and more now because my book is very focused on, uh, on the responsibility of military leaders. But as I am more evolving in national defense as a civilian in in a think tank, looking at how governments deal with their oversight of the of the military, it's hands off. And I, I do believe that it's because of that profession of arms, that, that idea that the military is something that as long as they don't commit a coup, we're fine. And, and I think that we're putting the bar very low in Western low democracy. Bar. Like if the bar is so low, we can step over it, uh, yeah. and without without even straining. And this is something that I that I think about now as as someone that has written this book that is uh, now been in the media over the past year concerning sexual misconduct issues, and and also as someone that is becoming more and more uh, familiar with the Somalia uh, affair and uh, the response from the civilian government. I do think that if we want true culture change in the military today, we also need a change in our public service culture and our government's relationship with our militaries. We were very quick without providing any excuses. I find that we were very quick on blaming it all on the Trudeau government. But the scandals uh, that led to Operation Honor were happening under the Harper government. And, and it's funny, we have that story of women's integration and issues of 
sexual misconduct kind of disappearing from the collective mind in Canada from 1999 to 2014. There is like that almost 20 years of like we do not know how it evolved and I do think that it's because political attention was not there and then you know two years after the deadlines well 9-11 happened and then we went to to Afghanistan. So there's a lot of things happening lots of moving parts in terms of historical context in terms of cultural context at the civilian and and political level that that really need to be addressed if we want this time around to work and not having another scandal in, if not seven years from now, in 20 years from now, and find ourselves with the same stories of of women or or men being sexually assaulted in the military and, and the military having deep issue uh, dealing with that and it's all the more concerning right now and and I do think that we need to have this conversation at a higher level because the military's priorities have changed over the last few months with the invasion mm-hmm. of Ukraine the the world environment and the threat environment is changing so fast that how do you sustain all the time that attention and that is a civilian to, to put that pressure on and to make sure that 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 the minister really directs and, and really oversees that process. And I hope that the external monitor that Arbor uh, recommended is going to be put in place soon because that helps. A lot of people see that external monitor as a punishment, but it's actually a very useful tool to remove the resort, like the need for resources that the military doesn't have into something that can be dedicated to that process. So let's see what happens. I have some concerns, but also have some hopes because that conversation that has evolved since the 1990s. So I guess that that was going to be one of my final questions, but I've got a couple more, but I I did want to kind of jump to that because I think you've touched it. Do you think that we have that culture change happening today as a result of the, you know, the constant political focus? Do you think that, 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 you know, the current threat environment and and the the war in the Ukraine, are are we facing the same kind of, you know, intent as we did back in in the middle of the decade of darkness where the the expressed intent was there, but got sidelined by Somalia, got sidelined by the Balkans got sidelined by cuts. Is this a similar inflection point in terms of the future of the military and women's integration? Do we need to learn certain lessons from what happened back then as we approach it today? Yeah, I I think that we're still at an early point in that shift, uh, so much so that we can actually learn the lessons now to make sure that we do not put gender integration in the back burner or as Dr. David Perry says, like completely off the burner. That being said, budget 2021 and budget 22 are attributing money to specific initiatives. We do have a Lieutenant General, Jeannie Carignan, responsible for culture change. I do think that chief professional conduct and culture, as long as it stays at that high level, at the L1 level, as we we would call it, can provide a lot of attention and prioritization because Jenny Carignan is a member and sits on the Armed Forces Council, which is where all the commanders, including the chief of the defense staff and the vice chief of the defense staff, talk. But I do think that an external monitoring body that has power, that, that, that really has teeth, 
sees and that has the full buy-in long-term of the minister will be the necessary thing where where there's going to be change and prevent those shifts. Another thing is that with the constant increase of defense spending, we will not find ourselves with a military that is in such a crunch. That being said, uh, I'm waiting for the reconstitution plan to come out where the, the military is trying to reshift its capabilities to try to manage the fact that it's 10,000 people short. And so that that would be an indicator of like what direction the military is taking in terms of its focus and making sure that the culture change that they're really trying to push. Uh, I've been in a number of briefings uh, by the chief professional conduct and culture and the people there care about this. They really want to push, but they're just one shop within the military. And you need to get buy-in from the commander of the Navy, the commander of the army that then gets down the hierarchy and that will be a lot of work. And so I'm always constantly worried about what will happen if the military ends up being way more overstretched than it already is. Culture change is difficult. It needs a lot of work and sometimes it gets deprioritized because they do not have the time to sit down and just talk. So culture change is being pushed right now, but the problem is that it's such at the early stages that if the military finds itself so crunched, that it can fall apart very quickly. Yeah, there's lots of things that military leaders and its civilian oversight and review have to deal with in terms of that, that complexity, particularly as the, the threat environment changes. It's always difficult to keep these kinds of issues on the front burner, or as you said, on the burner at all. I guess there are some new review agencies that are in place, uh, you know, whether it's the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians or the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency in Sira and Nisikov. National defense is now supposed to be reviewed by those uh, those those agencies. Do you think that that they are robust enough, uh, given their broad national security, defense uh, mandate, intelligence mandate, uh, to keep that kind of external eye that that uh, Justice Arbor wanted focused on the military in terms of external review? I am not sure that NCRA and NCCOP are going to be the, the necessary tools for it because of the recent partisan fights that we saw in regarding the nature of those institutions and groups. But it's also, yeah, it's way too large. And a lot of the time, even to this day, a lot of people have a hard time realizing that this is a national defense issue. This is way more people, weirdly enough, they see personnel policies and personnel related issues of the military as something that kind of stands outside of national defense. But it is very important national defense issue. Because usually what we see as the barriers to culture change in the military is also some of the barriers that you see in procurement, that you see in the slow process to digitize the military, problems with effective operational plans, uh, ineffective functioning of the institution altogether, and inclusion, diversity, and equity doesn't revolve in a vacuum within an institution. It's particularly tied not only to the behavior of individuals, but also with the way that the institution works. And the problem is that NCCOP and NCRA do not really look at those issues and the latest partisan fights over like documents and whether or not they're, they're robust enough makes me question their robustness. And we have a National Defense Committee last year that was incapable of agreeing on releasing a report on 
what aspect of the problem of sexual misconduct that happened in 2021, like to talk about it, to really provide something meaningful for the military to consider. And so, so far, the status of women committee was the most robust uh, discussion of sexual misconduct in the military at the parliamentary level, even though itself was kind of flawed because of its focus on the women aspect of sexual misconduct. So we, we need to reflect on also at a time of increased polarization, like how do we keep a proper oversight that looks at all aspects of the military. And I know that we have our hands full with a lot of procurement projects, but that needs to be in every single aspect of defense. And I'm biased, obviously, because it's what I, I sit on and overthink about every day. But I do think that if we integrate it at every part of the processes in defense, we can make it easier on ourselves to push that change forward. I just have one more question for you. I know we, we, our time is, uh, is limited, but it is about what does success look like uh, in terms of women's integration in the forces? And, uh, you know, I was kind of wondering, when do you think we'll have sort of that mission accomplished moment uh, in terms of women's integration in the Canadian forces? What would that look like? So, I mean, like, one of the simplest things would be like, not having constant stories about horrible development in in terms of when women are coming forward or or men trying to support them in their recording of sexual uh, misconduct uh, stuff. Uh, No reprisals and that kind of thing. But I am quite skeptical of the idea that sexual misconduct would will be eliminated altogether because we're humans and humans do bad things. And, and so like response is going to be very important. But I do not think that we, we should yell victory as soon as we reach 25% of women. Uh, I do not think that that is the thing. I think that having a lot of qualitative studies looking at how people feel in the military, the trust that they have in their leadership, whether they feel or not that they gender uh, plays a role against them. I'm a historian, so like I care more about uh, how people feel than than numbers per se. I do think that numbers are going to be useful in terms of integration because once you go past the token level of representation, you you get better processes. But what I want to hear now is when incidents happen, when the response from every single part of the military is, okay, we're going to help you out, we're taking this seriously. And then if a leader does not take that seriously, the person feels confident to go a step above and say, I have a problem. And like that next line of authority takes it seriously and not, and not a situation where the person ends up leaving the military. And another thing is that we need to also look at other aspects of of women's integration and minorities integration, because sexual misconduct is just an aspect of it. But women leave the military in greater number for medical reasons. And part of it is because equipment is ill-adapted to their bodies. And so that embracing of the fact that women have different bodies, have different strength physically and need different equipment that is fit for their unique physiological capacities. These are things where it's like you have everything you need in the military and if you do not have it, it won't take two, three, five years to implement that change. And culture change is going to be iterative. It's never going to be. And I think that this is what we're afraid of when we do reform is that when is it going to stop? But I think that the crux of the culture change that we need to have in in the military is creating a military that can better adapt to different conditions. That goes with inclusion, but some of the things I've been worried about when it comes to the response to sexual misconduct actually makes me worry about the capacity of our leaders to think strategically 
and therefore their capacity to to command people if we end up going to war in Europe for example. So those are really important things that I'm looking at that go beyond just the white words uh, being said by leaders. And it's complicated, but I know that there's a lot of people in the military that want to get it done, but also a lot of civilians that want to help the military succeed. I think that's a, that's a, that's a great answer. I think that, the, again, the complexity of culture change is something that is always going to be a challenge. But I think that having the kind of external experts such as you and others in academia, in other institutions, keeping an eye on, on what the Canadian Armed Forces are doing, what national defense and what the broader government of Canada is doing in this space is going to hold, I think, leaders to account in a far more transparent way than maybe has happened in the past. So I really want to thank you, Charlotte, for this, uh, for this wonderful chat. Thank you so much for the book, The Ones We Let Down. I think it is such an important read and, and I encourage others to, to pick it up and, and uh, read it. I think it will foster important conversation as uh, Canada's uh, armed forces and the Department of National Defense continue its efforts to, to evolve. So thank you very much.